What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Simon McAvoy, the UK head of strategy at Omo Bono over in, funnily enough, the UK. Today, we're going to talk about creativity and creating forgiving, warmer, kinder, less fear-based, less unforgiving companies in which to do our work, aren't we, Simon? We are. We are. Hello. What's up? Why is this a topic that you want to talk about today? The the topic is really interesting in the sense that I think what we are you know, what we're all engaged in as creative people, whether that's through our work that we do every day or through the creative pursuits we have outside of work, we're engaged in the business of putting things out into the world, which we are deeply and emotionally attached to. And as I've sort of progressed in my career, I've become increasingly interested in how we get that to be as good as it can be. But then, like, what's this? What's the setup behind it that supports great creative work? Like, how do you organize and create supportive environments for getting the best creative work out of people? Mm. And so, you know, this is it's really closely linked to the individual, to individual vulnerability and courage. And so, that's kind of what I'm interested in. Mm. Obviously, at a at an individual level, sometimes we're trying to do creative work, and we suspect that either our team, our department, our boss, the entire company, or the agency, te- the client team, or the interagency team isn't that supportive. Like, do you believe that in most cases, creative companies aren't supportive enough of their employees? Like, what makes you think that? Is there evidence for this, or is it just a hunch? Um, well, it's personal experience, first of all, which is that, um, you know, throughout my life, I've been involved in trying to bring ideas into the world and, and seen, you know, I would say actually the structural challenges that are placed on people trying to do that. And what I mean by that is that it's not a case that individuals in these companies or, you know, in, in, in companies traditionally are, you know, trying to quash good ideas or trying to suppress good work. It's that the system that they're operating in, the very structure of the corporation or of the traditional business is one which builds fear and distrust and insecurity and instability. So if, if you take an, an example of this would be the line manager uh, sort of subordinate relationship, all right? So if you think about what the line manager and subordinate relationship really looks like in reality, From the line manager's point of view, it's a high dependency relationship where the individual they're managing is basically having to, you know, in the worst possible case, you can imagine this, where where they're basically having to check in for everything. Like you get the micromanager, right? Mm. From from the from the perspective of the person being managed, it is, um, and there's an individual that has extraordinary amount of power over them that can take away their chances of a career, take away their chances of progression take away a chance of promotion, more money, all the things that people want out of a job, take away the, their, their right to have good ideas or even worse, steal them. So well, once you sort of factor in just that one part, just that one little element of the traditional corporate structure um, is already building a huge amount of fear into, it's built into the system. And I think my contention would be, and I would, I would ask anyone listening to sort of reflect on their own experiences of this, which is that I don't think that gets the best work out of people. You know, I think that that uh, means that people operate in an environment where they are guarded, where they are concerned for how they will be judged, and where they're less likely to put forward their best work and ideas. Mm-hmm. And yet the history of the industry is riddled with stories of they weren't 
call chief creative officers back then, but creative leaders of companies pitting creative teams against each other, sometimes explicitly, sometimes passive aggressively. You know, I've, I've seen and heard some interesting stuff. For example, getting in a car from Sydney to drive down to Canberra to pitch the government and the chief creative officer decided not to pitch one of the creative team's pieces of work, but didn't tell them. And when we got back, pretended he did. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? Seems like I, I would call this lying. Uh, I don't want to get caught up in it. And so there are stories of competitiveness and the opposite of what we we're talking about being successful. And to some degree, you do see this in sport where you, especially say with football and soccer, that's the one I'm most exposed to, where the coach is like, no, we want the players to have to compete for their spot every week. Yeah. And, and so my first response to that, I think, would be like, what is the long term success of that strategy? So, yeah, OK, so that maybe that wins you one pitch. But over time, what does that do for the culture of a company and how successful is that company in the long run? So that would be an initial question I think would be would be interesting to explore. But there's something much, much bigger here. Let's not think for a second about like small hits or small results, but instead thinking about the capacity of that organization to withstand change and disruption. All right. So let's think about, I mean, I think agencies are in a really funny time right now where we're having to rethink a lot of who we are and what we do in the world. And most agencies I would contend, and, and again, I would say the same for, for, for very traditional top-down hierarchical corporate structures are not designed well to withstand change. They are resilient, but they're, very static. And so this this is a problem, I think, for a lot of agencies. And this is what comes from that traditional, highly competitive type of top-down culture. It's not able to change fast and frequently. It's not open to adaptability. And I, I mean, I, I take your point that, you know, competitiveness can be really great. Like I think that having competition in, in an environment where people trust each other where there is support for one another, but an, an acknowledgement that you're try, you're striving for something better and you're trying to outdo one another in that kind of, in a way that I think a sport, a good sports team is, right? Where you're a team, but you're competitive with one another because you, you're tri- striving for better. I think that's fantastic. But what you're talking about in some of those examples is lying and, and people putting their own agendas first and engaging in what, we, what we've started to call here armored leadership, which is a term that comes from uh, Brene Brown's work. I don't know if you're familiar with her or your listeners will be, but um, she, she's, she's someone who's inspired a lot of the, the work that we've been doing over the last kind of year or so at, at the agency to try and make these changes happen. And um, armored leadership is an interesting concept, which I'm you know, happy to sort of get into a bit, but there's lots of kind of bad habits and ticks that leaders develop that effectively make people more frightened and more um, inhibited in doing their best work. Yeah. What I'm curious about is from, from what I understand from psychologists is that it does tend to take someone with a, a solid creative brain. I do believe that creativity is innate in humans. I also believe that some people happen to be more often better at it and sometimes trained to be better at it. But from what I understand, it takes uh, you know, creative brains to create 
the company, to create the product, to create change. And then the creative brain needs a conservative brain to help run it. And conservative in, in a small C sense, not politics, is about conserving order, being order and control oriented. Mm. And so what I'm, I'm wondering from what I've read is this idea of a company having to change and having to be agile. Is that potentially a misdirection? Are companies set up to be that? Do they exist and then not exist? Is, is that just the life cycle, which history would suggest is correct? Yeah, like to an extent, I agree with that. I think actually most companies do just kind of come into existence and then gradually at some would rather move out of existence. And that's just the natural order of things. Um, here, what I would encourage you to think about here is um, to shift away from this idea of polarities, to shift away from this idea that you can be creative or ordered that you can have structure or no structure, that you can be competitive or collaborative. Because actually what we're trying to do in this, in this world and in this, in this kind of moving into this new way of, of working, which is the kind of, I mean, we can define it a bit, but it's sort of in a more self-organized way of working where we're reducing the power over relationships. We're increasing the power with relationships. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to move to a, a, something more like integration right? Where we have both of those things and they're both working for us at different times and in different ways, but they respect one another. One doesn't have priority over the other, right? So, and, and we've all been in, I mean, I'm sure you've been in this and experienced this in your career where you've been in a company where creativity ruled, right? Where the creative directors or whatever had all of the, they basically held the keys to the business. And, and actually some of those businesses aren't that enjoyable to work in. <laughs> They're quite, they can be quite chaotic um, and unstable. And equally, I, I've also experienced, and, and many clients probably fit in this category, companies that are entirely run by the finance department and, and by order and structure. And again, it's not a very pleasant environment. So we're looking for a level of integration here. And, and then the question, be, of course, comes like, how do you do that? Which is, you know, the, the hard bit. <laughs> yeah, so are there any other symptoms of the, the structural issues that you're trying to solve that you could point people to because sometimes especially when you're new to the industry you don't even realize these things are things and then you're 10 20 years in you're like why did i accept that what was that all about because that someone made that up that's not real mm. yeah well i mean that's probably a really good example of something which is imagined boundaries right so like it, it's really interesting to start thinking through as we have been doing over the last sort of six months or so, like what are the real boundaries, like the idea that the lines that we cannot cross because they're genuinely unsafe if we do so for the business, like it would be really unsafe for us to wake up tomorrow and I don't know, like let half the team go or, or, or you know, change the way we work with clients altogether or change, you know, there's a bunch of big changes we just wouldn't want to make because it would cause a lot of instability. So that's quite a real boundary. But there's loads of imagined boundaries, right? Like, what are the imagined boundaries? This person doesn't speak to this person. These teams don't get on together. Like, these teams don't work together. Don't disturb that person at this time. Like, this person, if you have an idea, you need to go through this, this, and this to, to get it done. Like, some of this stuff is just totally invented. And it's either in our heads, right, which is where the first line of boundaries start. So that's the, the, the sort of internal, like, what are you telling, what stories are you telling yourself that prevent you from, you know, living to your full potential? But then there's also kind of cultural 
boundaries, right? Which is, a, we've all sort of collectively and un, unknowingly agreed that there's a bunch of boundaries here. <laughs> and because we all live as if their boundaries are real, they become real, right? Rather than just going, actually, if, if we look at it for 10 seconds, we realize we've just invented it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's quite a good example of one, actually. Um, can, you, can you think of a boundary that you've come across recently in your life where you're like, oh, we, someone made that up, I made that up, you made that up. It's not real. The, one of the biggest ones is uh, that you get in all businesses, some, I think would be something that you would call learned helplessness. So I don't know if you ever come across that term, but the, the idea is that through being managed, I mean, in fact, it's, it goes much deeper than that. It's, it's through growing up in an environment and in a culture where we have, where we sort of ex- assume that fixed hierarchies are the norm let's say, right? So you're in a family uh, and your parents tell you what to do. Then you go to school and they tell you what to do. Then you go to university, they tell you what to do. Then you get into a corporation, they tell you, your manager tells you what to do. And all through life, you're basically told what to do. And then somebody comes along to you and says, do you know what? You can do whatever you want. Like you can be whatever you want, right? You can make decisions. You can have your own ideas. If If you're passionate about something, you go for it. And guess what? People don't. Well, there's no surprise. They've, they've spent their entire life being told that that's not what they do and that they have no power to change it. And so learned helplessness is something that you, you actively need to work with. Um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an imagined boundary in every organization and it sits in the heads of individuals and says to them, uh, you don't have control over your own life, so don't even try. Mm-hmm. Can you think of specific phrases or sentences that you've said to yourself or heard from other people that are... Uh, learned helplessness happening? Um, like a, uh, probably a good one would be something like somebody has a, an idea for something they want to change. Um, I'm trying to think if I can give you an even more specific example. We were trying to do quite a lot of work last year. Um, we, we've really built our user experience and customer experience function in the business. It's, it's a really interesting and growing area of what we do. And we were having a big conversation last year on what uh, tools we should be using for that, right? And I, I've been deliberately trying to stand stand back from within because the, the user experience function sits within my team at Omabon. I've been deliberately trying to stand back from that team and kind of let them go. And, and there's some supremely talented people in that team who who are doing some fantastic work. But what was really interesting was the the blockage that people were hitting when they were trying to define what tools they needed and then get them kind of signed off by the business, right? Because you have to create a bit of a business case and say, hey, we're going to need this money. It's going to be sent this tool. Who's going to use it, et cetera, et cetera. And what, what I was hearing from people was, well, nobody's, nobody understands this. Nobody, nobody is listening to me. I can't make change happen here. People don't understand. People, you know, people don't get it. It was that sort of language. And actually, what I was trying to help people understand was that, that they are all stories they're telling themselves. What's actually happening here is they, they are waiting for someone else to ultimately make the decision. They're outsourcing that decision to someone else, even unconsciously. And actually, what they really need to start doing is think about how they can own that decision and how they can make it happen. Now, now what I would say in defense of the people I'm thinking of here, the way we were set up a year ago really made that hard, right? There was no really good way. And I think lots of people will experience this. There isn't a clear way of how to get things done. And usually the way to get things done in organizations today is you go to a senior person and they go to an even more senior person and eventually someone makes a decision. So what we're trying to replace that with is collective decision-making and 
uh, more teams rather than individuals, reliance on teams rather than individuals, um, and, and other forms of decision-making and, and process that basically remove the need for individuals to make all those decisions. Mm. And for people who aren't used to making those decisions or even thinking that they're allowed to make those decisions, how do you help a team who's new to it make decisions? Well, so this is the this is the split so the work falls into two categories one is the external and one is the internal the external is some of the stuff we've been talking about like how do you set teams up processes organizational design all that kind of stuff really really interesting gets a lot of attention that you can go online and read a lot of blogs about people like zappos and how they've installed holacracy and all this kind of stuff right the internal is to my mind like where the hard bit starts because that's what we're talking about now. How do you, you, even if you set someone up in an environment where they're allowed to make more of their own decisions and take the initiative, how do you actually help them see that that's okay now and remove those internal boundaries that they're placing on themselves? So the work that we've been doing, we've been using Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program to help us with this because her work is based around, fundamentally around, around vulnerability and around shame and fear so what you do is we we're working in in small groups with all of the teams across the business to explore our values what we hold dear to explore um different ways of thinking about the world that may be getting in the way of actively making a decision so one of those let me give you a precise example because it can sound a bit nebulous one of those guiding principles we're calling them for the way the business works is experimentation over planning okay now this is the sort of thing that terrifies a strategist but what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people realize that when they make a decision to do something it doesn't have to mean a big long plan a huge thought out thing like loads of people stakeholders feeding into it if you can find a way to turn that into a little experiment like a prototype, I'm just going to try this and we'll see how it goes. Then suddenly it removes a lot of that fear of getting it wrong, which is fundamentally what lies at the heart of a lot of this. I'm frightened of getting it wrong. I'm frightened of looking stupid. I'm frightened of getting fired. If you can remove all that and say, it's just an experiment. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. You've learned it doesn't work. Then those little mental sort of um, enablers can help people move forward with this. Yeah, I think I think the idea of experimenting and practicing are the are super useful ideas to hold as an individual in life, especially if you want to have some kind of creative life and some kind of creative life outside of a day job, especially. But that can run into conflict with people who are very judgmental. And I mean, if you've ever worked, I don't know what a Mabono is like, but if you've worked in a large-ish old school advertising agency at some point and your team's not won the pitch and then a meeting goes in at 8 a.m. the day after you find out you didn't win the pitch, you're like, oh God, what's this all going to be about? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, oh, we were experimenting, we were practicing. Like, <laughs> there, there was a time in the, at least the 90s and early 2000s where that's, you're not allowed to think those things. So... You know, what I'm curious about in general, but also specifically with the idea of accepting experimentation and encouraging it. Like, so when I, when I ran teams, one of the questions I would start team meetings with is, what's one risk you've taken in the past week and how did it go? Because I wanted to send a signal mm. about risk-taking, learning and sharing about those things, that that's the job. How have you helped people who've been at the company for a long time, people who are in senior roles, learn how to use these ideas in this language, specifically about encouraging, demanding, and loving experimentation? 
I mean, the first thing I say to that is, look, we're on a journey with this. Every single person in our business is on a journey with this. And it's, it's not easy. So I wouldn't sit here and claim, hey, look, you know, I've got the magic wand solution. I mean, frankly, this is lots of time and conversation and patience and asking people to try things and building trust. And it takes time, right? I mean, what I would say is there are some Again, going back to this idea about polarities, right? It's not that we're now saying, hey, throw caution to the wind. It's a, we're a risk-taking culture. Everything goes. Because that would be crazy. You know, we don't want to do that, right? I don't think we'd last very long as a business if we just did that. So what we're saying is, how can you have some of the risk-taking, but maintain some of the protection against recklessness, okay? We want to contain some stability. So one of the things we do around that is we put a little parameter around experimentation, which is, is it safe to try, all right? Some things aren't safe to try. It's okay to admit that. <laughs> so, so, you know, is it safe to try usually means, is it going to really do the company some serious financial damage if you get this wrong? And I think actually losing a pitch might fall into that category. You know, sometimes losing a pitch can be seriously damaging, especially if it's an incumbent client, right? So is it safe to try? Is it going to cause catastrophic financial damage? Is it going to cause serious cultural damage is another one of those parameters, right? So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of thinking about then, you know, is, is it going to cause a lot of people to maybe want to leave the company or to get particularly upset about something or draw a big division between teams, create an us and them mentality, that kind of stuff that can do a lot of damage. So you've got to think about those two things before you start experimenting. But we're, we're giving people the tools here to make decisions. We're not telling them what to do. We're just saying, here's some tools to think about when you're making a decision. The other thing that we're also asking people to do is to use something called an advice process, which is just a term given to basically going around and asking people who might know about it a bit more than you. So like this particularly is good for people who are, you know, coming up the ranks in your, in their career is to think about like, who else might I ask that might give me a new perspective on this before I make this experiment happen, you know, and that might be people who are affected by it or people who've maybe been around a bit longer than you and know a thing or two. You don't have to follow their advice, by the way, you're not, you're not asking them for permission you're just saying, give me another perspective before I do this. So there's lots of little things you can do to, to build a bit of safety around that. Okay. Uh, and then you were talking about the difference between having power over people versus having power with people. Can you take that one to the streets for us? Like, what does that look like <laughs> in a meeting, in, a, in an interaction? Yeah, right. This is actually probably one of the most important concepts in this whole space. And um, I love this concept be, partly because of the story behind it. So it was... It was um, developed by a woman called Mary Parker Follett, who is extraordinary and no one has ever heard of. And she's, at, she's actually referred to as the mother of consulting. She was one of the first ever management consultants back in like the 1890s. And she developed this entire methodology of organizational design, which was all built around what the stuff we're talking about, you know, trust and collaboration and more community and all this stuff, right? And of course, she was just completely ignored <laughs> by the management community who all fell in love with sort of Taylorism and scientific management. And it's, it's really funny because like over 100 years later, her ideas are becoming really fashionable. But this, this idea of power over and power with, right, is cool. So power over is the, it's, it's what you were describing earlier on with that creative director, who was going, look, it's my team, it's my, it's my agency, it's, these are my, this is my pitch, I'm going to make the calls here, I'm cutting them out of it, I'm going to send these, you know, that kind of thing, like using your power to basically 
you know, wielding your power, right? And saying, I'm going to make this happen because I can, because of my position. And usually it results in quite low levels of motivation by the people who are on the receiving end of it. And, and if you like, there's a whole bunch of very interesting scientific studies that have been done into the impact of being at the bottom of a hierarchy um, in both in humans and in chimpanzees. It's fascinating stuff that leads to actual feelings of depression and anxiety, physical mm-hmm. sensations. So power over is actually pretty toxic. Whereas power with is great because power with is what it's saying is I'm, I'm with you trying to get a better result. We're here together as you know, as equals, as, as collaborators, trying to improve something, trying to make things better. How can I help you do this better? So even if you are in a, in a, if you're technically in a power over position, like I have people that I manage, you know, in theory, I'm in a power over position, but I don't use power over because I see it as a very ineffective tool. I actually see power with as far more effective, which is I've noticed there's something here. Help me understand what's happening. I'm going to get in, you know, supposedly sort of sitting side by side with you to basically talk about the issue that we're in question. And maybe it's like a piece of work you've been working on. You're like, you know what? This isn't getting to where I need it to be. Help me understand what's going on here for you. Help me understand why this isn't where it could be. And somebody can give you their perspective. Usually you get something really interesting from that, first of all, that can actually be a blocker that's getting in the way. Mm-hmm. But secondly, it's like, okay, how are we going to make this better together? All right, not like do this better or you're fired. That's basically the, the fundamental difference there. But if you, right. if, you, if you run that kind of algorithm across an entire company, it's remarkable because suddenly, you know, you're changing the nature of the conversation that's going on everywhere in the business. Yeah. So I totally identify with this. It's my favorite thing. But you're not just running that algorithm across an entire company. That algorithm has to interact with the city, the region, the country that that company is in. And the UK, from what I've read, is it's more hierarchical than many places. I, I, you know, just the class system there, it's, I mean, it's explicit. However, there's a certain casual leadership that I think is relatively common in places like Sweden, Norway, Amsterdam, New Ze- uh, Amsterdam is a country now in my mind because it's so amazing. <laughs> the Netherlands, New Zealand, and, and Australia, right? So, because the thing about the power over versus power with, you know, I've, I've run teams in New York and, and I've had people in large places say, just tell me what to do. And I'm like, I respect you too much to do that. It's not what I'm about. I'm here to help you get good and for us to get good together. And they were just like, confused by that whole interaction because this large company was very much about power. It was very hierarchical and in very explicit ways. And also the US business culture at large is top down. So if you, you know, there's pieces of research about this. So if you just imagine heads in a circle, that's like circular culture, more casual leadership, you're in the elevator or the lift with the CEO, maybe you can have a quick chat in some parts of the world. In other parts of the world, that's not cool. You don't do that because that's an important individual mm. and people who are lower in status don't get to talk to the important individual. So the question with this is is really about getting to... like Because there is idealism in this and idealism is useful. You do practically, not just theoretically, have power over people. But then the other part of your practice, the majority part, is to have power with them. Any sense on if someone is in a very hierarchical culture, how any of these ideas can be useful to them. I mean, first of all, look, there are companies um, moving to self-organization, which is this sort of flatter structure all over the world, right? 
they don't just exist in one or two countries. This is happening all over the world. Um, if 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 listeners are interested, there is a a bunch of forums and and research boards you can go on, which usually talk about teal organizations, which is a, a, a reference to a book called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux, which is a very good book. I would strongly suggest anyone read it for a quick dip into this this world of self-organization. But what I would say, I mean, you know, these these organizations are cropping up everywhere, you know, in the developing world, in the developed world, in the West, in the East, you know, you name it. So I don't know, like, if there is anything that says you can't do it in that kind of a society. I mean, what, what, what you are definitely right about is that it's probably more challenging in some than others. And what I would say is, if you're in a company which is very top-down and hierarchical, if you are in a senior position in that company, it is possible, because I've done it, I mean, it's possible to run some of these ideas within your team without being blocked off too much by the rest of the business. So, you know, you can start to think about how, you know, the, 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 armored, the armored leadership stuff from Brene Brown is really interesting. So, like, things like you can start praising more and criticizing less, all right? That's a really simple step you could take using praise and positive reinforcement rather than cynicism and criticism, which you can do in your team with your people and doesn't require any systems change, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, another one might be, even in terms of thinking about the power over thing, just using language differently with a team. So, so stepping into a conversation with like, okay, I'm prepared to own my part in this. Like I'm, I know I may be contributing to this issue, but help me understand what's going on here. You know, even changing the language like that, I think can make a big difference. And, and you're right, like some, some organizations, there's, there's a lot, uh, this is why I referenced the Lalu book because he talks about stages of organizational development. And, and I won't go into all the, all the theory here because frankly, we could talk about it for hours. But the fact is that there are, depending on which sort of roughly what sort of stage of development your organization is at, they're going to be more or less open to these kind of ideas. And certainly organizations that are a very kind of bureaucratic authoritarian stage of development um, you're going to struggle, <laughs> frankly. But then I, I would argue that there are very few modern corporations or modern creative businesses that are at that stage. Mm. Most organizations these days are placed more at a kind of uh, an, an organizational stage that's usually refer referenced as the kind of the machine. So mm. it's like a sort of a, the, the traditional kind of capitalist corporation, right? It's kind of cold and unforgiving, but gets things done. It's efficient, right? So that's usually where most organizations are. There's also a stage up from that, which is kind of like more like the family, you might call it, which is where everyone's in it together. It's highly collaborative. We're all friends. We all love each other. That A lot of creative businesses are in that stage. And the problem with that one is that it's usually quite inefficient and nothing really gets done, <laughs> which we've all experienced. So, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to move shift up a stage from that, which is let's take the best parts of all of this stuff and try and work out what's our integrated model for a, a organization which has the collaborativeness and has the family feel and has people you know, getting on well, not sorry, getting on well, it's terrible, but like has people kind of having really good, deep relationships with the people they work with, but at the same time is competitive and gets things done and, and is directive and has clarity of, you know, people having tough conversations with each other because all that stuff's good stuff too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that family 
agency type. I, th I think that's the digital agency of 1998 to 2013, <laughs> especially in Brooklyn. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. I also think there are certain agency types that would and will really struggle to embrace these ideas. You know, I've, I've been around the PR agency enough. I've spoken to lots of people who've, who've with good intentions, made the leap as a planner or a quote-unquote creative. I don't like using that word like that, but I'm going to use it because you do. Not you, but the listener. Uh, who've made that leap and they're like, hang on, what's going on here? Because especially in the US, you've got a US business culture that's very top-down. PR agencies are very hierarchical. The work travels up by the individual and then back down through other individuals. And people are watching each other because they're always focused on the optics so that if you were to behave the way that you're talking about, unless the senior management agree with it, you actually do stand quite a risk of standing out and people not thinking that you're playing mm -hmm. the game that they've all agreed to play in the industry. And then you come in with new ideas and people can be like, hang on, no, I've, I've got like 10 years to retirement. I'm, I didn't sign up to change right now. You just back off. Uh, and so I do think there are types of agencies that really can struggle with, with these ideas. Question for you, what kind of personal work have you done to, you know, obviously read a lot, but what, what personal work have you done to wrap your head around these ideas and how to help your teams do better? Yeah, so so this has been like the, the arguably in, in many ways the most transformational part of, of engaging in this work has been my own sort of journey alongside it because obviously you bring yourself into work. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, a line, it's Star Wars, isn't it, where he's about to go into the that cave and he looks up at, I think it's Yoda or Obi-Wan. He says, you know, what's in the cave? What's in the cave, Yoda? And, and Yoda just says, whatever you take with you, you know? So when you when you go into this cave, this cave of the unknown, and, and you know, in Joseph Campbell's words, it's the cave you fear to enter that you need to go into, you're taking with you a lot of stuff. And so the work I've been doing is trying to identify in myself what I'm carrying into my work every day, what fears, what feelings, what, you know, the desire for love, the desire for belonging, the shame that comes with feeling stupid or looking stupid that is buried into, and, and your listeners may be familiar with the term, the shadow. So like the shadow side of who you are is all of the stuff that you find most loathsome about yourself as an individual, right? So a, a good way to access it is to think about the, the, the sorts of people you most hate, <laughs> the sorts of people that you most loathe being around, the kind of qualities they have, the things they do that annoy you. All of that is probably you buried in your shadow, right? It's all the stuff you don't like about yourself that you're not prepared to admit to. So what I've been Whoa. doing... Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, no. for me, it's like people who don't read and who aren't interested in the world and who are highly critical and controlling. And I'm like, oh, that's me. Mm. Well, it's like, it's, it's, there'll be some version of that in there, right? So it's how you interpret it. So like an interesting one for me was aggression because like I, I find aggressive, aggressive behavior, like physically and violently aggressive behavior, really, really difficult to be around. Like I don't like it at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it very off-putting. I find aggressive people off-putting. And then I did a retreat this year and I've been doing some therapy with this. So the therapy has been great. And I know you're, you're something you're a fan of too. Like it's, it's, um, that's been really helpful to sort of delve into the shadow work. And then the retreat I went on where we did shadow work as well. 
really helped me identify that actually a big part of this was I'm actually a very angry and aggressive person. Like locked away, bolted down inside of me is a lot of anger and aggression. And, and I don't confront it and I don't deal with it. And so it leaks out sideways into my life in really unhelpful ways. So like a big thing that I've been going through is how do I take the energy that comes from getting pissed off and channel it into something useful at the right and appropriate moment, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, anger can be great. Anger can be fantastic. You know, anger is fueling this whole extinction rebellion thing, you know, which may actually do something to climate change. You know, anger is good, but at, this, at the wrong time, it's catastrophic. So that would be my sort of little example. And, and, but there's tons of this stuff. I, I think that, you know, again, my, my, my desire not to look stupid, like how many, how many planners and strategists listening are just terrified of looking stupid? Like we're not, we're so terrified of looking stupid. We've built an entire goddamn career around being the smartest person in the room, right? Mm. Now, why are you terrified of looking stupid? And then what does that mean for how you treat other people? Do you look at other people who are stupid and look down on them? You know, do you condescend others who are less educated than you? The shadow is a, is a dark place. The idea of being the smartest person in the room does come up a lot in uh, strategy chats. I can't say that that was ever a thing I really thought about. And honestly, when I moved to the US, you know, and, and I know some of the scores I used to get on things, but I was embarrassed by that. And it wasn't a, like it was a big enough thing, but it wasn't a thing. And I honestly, to deal with the overconfidence and some of the authoritarian behaviors I saw in management teams and agencies here, I had to sit there and go, hang on, dude, you did okay at school, like in tests and stuff. Like you, you're not stupid. And I had to tell myself that I was smarter to deal with this mm. torrent of overconfidence that sometimes was about mediocre work. So I can I kind of come at that particular point in a different way. Why, why do you think you, in particular, are nervous about not being seen as being smart? Well, um, this is now becoming a therapy session. <laughs> so, so it really goes back a lot of it. A lot of my issues, uh, like a lot of people's, particularly a lot of men, goes back to the relationship they had with their father. And so, it, you know, and I don't, you know, this is sort of quite personal stuff, but like he was a man who very much celebrated knowledge and he's a very well-educated guy, hugely learned, like just widely read, and so I kind of think at some point in my life, I developed this sense that if I could be smart, I would impress him and, you know, therefore earn the love I so desperately needed from, from my parents. And so, you know, I think that it's like a little thing that happens to you when you're younger. It's like a little algorithm you start to run at the age of like seven or eight. And before you know it, like by the time you're in your 30s, it's developed like its entire own world. It's got like seven heads and wings and breathes fire, you know, like this thing is, it is now its own beast. And so what I've had to spend time thinking about is like, why do I think I get my self-worth from being smart, right? Like wh- wh- why do I attach so much of my own value to being clever? Because actually, first of all, I'm probably not that smart you know, really, you know, I, I do okay, but I, we, we, we all do. If, we're, if you're working in strategy, you're probably a pretty bright person, but like none of us are Stephen Hawking, you know, or, or something like that. So that's a good a bit of humility is a, is a good thing. Uh, but secondly, like when people come away from an interaction with other human beings, the, the stuff they love about them is usually 
the the pratfalls, like the vulnerability, the the you know the the humanity in someone who's just saying like I don't need to prove anything. You know, I need to hustle for my worth. That's the stuff we actually love in other people. So so going on the offensive the whole time saying, God, I need to be this smart person. I need to be this smart person. You're actually probably putting up a wall that's preventing you from really connecting properly with other people. Mm. And it, it could really destroy your chances of managing other people well as well mm. because you're looking at everything they do through whether it's smarter than you while also trying to protect your identity as being smarter than them. So that's going to create kind of like a management riddle for, for people as well. And that's probably one of the early management riddles that as a person who's been a practitioner of strategy has to work through as they graduate into a leadership role. Is that fair to say? It's, it's, it's 100% fair to say. It's fundamentally one of the hardest things. Like There'll be lots of people who will listen to this who will be taking their first steps into management as a strategist, who are starting to manage the team as strategists. And the two fundamental things that are going on there are, one, like, oh my God, am I even smart enough? How am I smart enough to manage this group of people? Like, how on earth do I like, and, and then like, sorry, the, the follow on point from that very quickly is right. Well, that need, I need to be like the first choice strategist then to, to be able to manage a group of strategists. I need to be the best strategist. Like I need to be number one. And that can lead to a whole bunch of very unhelpful behaviors, right? All the way through from, you know, being overly critical and micromanaging other people's work to exhaustion and like wearing your exhaustion as a as a badge of pride, you know, like I'm so into my strategy, I never stop doing strategy. I'm the number one strategist. Like you'll burn yourself out, you know. Um, to to not having a kind of a, a good enough work life balance. All of this stuff can stem from this this need, this this feeling that oh my god, I'm managing other people, so I need to be the best. And and you don't, like you absolutely don't. There was there was something I heard once from a, a professional footballer. I actually can't remember who it was. Was talking about what happens in football teams when a new manager comes into the dressing room. I thought it was interesting because they said that um, what happens is within about 20 minutes, a professional footballer has worked out whether that manager is useful to them or not. Mm. And it's like, has this person got someone, something to, to teach me? Has this person, can this person make me better? Does this person care about my career, my future? And I was like, actually, that's a pretty good algorithm to think about in terms of a strategy manager. Like, Rather than thinking about being the best strategist, how about like making everyone else the best strategist? Like, wouldn't people love to work for a manager like that? Yeah. I, I, so I use some of this language when I manage teams. It was easier in a Brooklyn agency to say, we, we might get two years together, three years if we're lucky. And when you leave, but when we leave, I want us all to be better for it, to live better lives for it. And that's, that's life. And our work is to help each other get better. And it was a very counterintuitive thing, I think, for some people to hear. Now, when I hear, just as a last question, when I hear words like vulnerability, creativity, forgiveness, not being fearful, not being controlling, but being supportive, having power with people, not power over, over people, aren't we just talking about love? Um, yeah, love is a huge part of it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not, I think it would be, I haven't thought about that question enough to say yeah that's all love but love is like the connecting thing that that ties a lot of that together and i i would say to to look at that in in two ways one is the love of the people that you're working with um i think it's really hard to to genuinely like want to pull together with other people if you can't find love for them it doesn't mean you have to be in love with them although that happens a lot presumably in brooklyn agencies as well but 
but it means you have to find a sort of a deep level of appreciation and care for others and, and, a, and a sense of removing the need for the self to be prioritized. But I, I, the other side to that I would look at is self-love. Like, you know, there's a, a Brene has a line where she says, you can only love others as much as you can love yourself. I really believe that. Like, I think if you can't give yourself a bit of a break, if you can't really appreciate the gifts and talents you have to bring to the world, you're operating from a place of scarcity and fear and you will not be able to lead people, not fully, you know? Um, so self-love is very important here too. Mm, awesome. Uh, Simon, where are you most active on the internet? Uh, well, you can connect with me uh, intermittently on Twitter. Um, I'm at Cy and I spend a bit of time on LinkedIn as well, as and when. I'm sort of dodging Gary V videos and things like that, but you know, I, I, I tend to spend a bit of time there too. So Simon McAvoy on LinkedIn. So the white paper that you published relatively recently, where can people find it and what's it called? Uh, it's 10 steps for an unstoppable marketing strategy. You can find that actually it's pinned to the top of my Twitter at the moment. And it is also on the Omobono website on our blog, omobono.com. Um, it is possibly a, a useful one to have a conversation with clients about. It's kind of client facing, but it's useful, I think, for, for agency strategists as well. It just breaks down some, some good thinking on what to think about when you're, when you're planning a marketing strategy. Awesome, awesome. Uh, and for those who've heard me recount the story a couple of times about being at a stand-up comedy night in London and there being a fight breaking out and people drinking bottles of wine behind me, it was very strange. It was like one of the strangest comedy nights I've ever been to. Uh, that was Simon's fault. He took me there. And I wasn't <laughs> causing the violence either. We, we always do that. It's the London welcome. You have to see a fist fight in London these days. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit dramatic. You know? Chill out, London. So we're, we're a divided country. <laughs> I, know, I know. I think there are, there's centuries of histories of fist fights in London. I'd say so. Simon, thank you so much for joining me on Sweater today. Best wishes with everything. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Peace. Bye.